Hello, you are listening to WPRB 103.3 FM. This is Hot Girl Theory, hosted by MC Otani, me, and Sharon Musa. Hello. So today we have one guest speaker, Mahishin, a good friend. Mahishin, do you want to do a quick introduction? Hi, my name is Mahishin. Um, I... um, (laughs) I like reading. I like reading things. I I've I've been reading a lot of things recently, and I'm excited to talk about the things I've read. Where are you calling from? <laughs> oh, so I'm 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 talking to you from um from Bushwick in Brooklyn, New York. Cool. Nice. So, yep. what are we reading today, Mahishin? You're going to be our expert, our guide. Yeah. So today, uh, today I've been I've been um, actually I've been interested in this for a while, especially since um. Well, I initially got interested in this through the works of um, black feminist scholars like Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Miriam Kaba and sort of the, the, the concepts of like mutual aid and community support and sort of the disenchantment with the state that we've experienced over sort of so a lot of us have experienced over the year, but I think more communities have experienced over, over centuries and decades. Um, so I initially got interested in, in this concept and, and um, as someone who I think studied a lot of political theory in college, I was really interested in, in sort of the more of the theoretical aspects of it. And um, so I started reading um, what is considered sort of the one of the kind of foundational works on anarcho-communism, which I guess we'll talk about and talk, explain, you know, what, what, what that means. But um it's called the conquest of bread, or the book where I guess we'll mainly talk about is called the conquest of bread, mm-hmm. um, and it's written by this uh, Russian anarchist in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, called mm-hmm. uh, Peter Kropotkin. Um, and so there's a lot of history and and context around that, and I guess I guess I'm excited to talk to you all about that. Cool. Um, did you say when this book? Well, I guess we'll get a little bit into the context, but what was the year this book was published? Um, so uh, it was initially published in the late 1800s. And then like it was he worked on it um, like he worked on it continuously. Kropotkin like worked on it continuously and updated it throughout the early 1900s until he died in like 1916 or something. Oh, so um, the version that we read, what version what version was that? that's the that's the most recent one so that's i think that's the one published in 1913 or something i'll 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 check for sure and let you know and it's in the it's in the book that we're reading so um i'll just have to look it up but mm-hmm. um cool. yeah it was it was sort of his most most recent edition before he passed yeah got it um mm-hmm. so i guess we maybe we should start with like a brief summary of what it's about like very very short and um, maybe some background on who Kropotkin was, what were his, like, motivations. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, so the book itself is sort of, a, it builds upon a lot of, um, and the, the, the specific edition of the book that, that I guess we're, we're referring to in this conversation is, um, is the 1995 Cambridge University Press edition, where there's an introduction by this um, this professor named Marshall Schatz, who writes a really, really insightful introduction about the, the history of anarchism in the West, um, and particularly sort of the, the role that Russians in Russia in particular has had in in um and the west in, in particular french french like french political theorists and french philosophers have had in in creating and like disseminating this anarchist thought um so yeah so kropotkin is really sort of a an in, inherits a lot of this this thought and this philosophy from um individuals like Michael Proudhon, who's, who's a French guy, and Bakunin, who's who's also a, a Marxist. Um, not a Marxist, both but are, an anarchist. Uh, um, both are French um, um, anarchists. So Proudhon is, but Bakunin is Russian. Um, mm. So those are those are two other kind of contemporary anarchists of, of Kropotkin's. And 
they've written a lot of um they've written a lot of works that have inspired I guess this work and this work has sort of kind kind of emerged as one of the most authoritative western pieces on anarchism because of sort of those influences and and this was the same time um this was the same time sort of the that Karl Marx and Frederick Engels were active and um I guess we'll talk about the fact that their form of of communism and um kind of their their concept of political society was was very Kropotkin and and Bakunin and Proudhon they kind of were opposed to the way Marx and Engels thought about society and politics um because Marx and Engels weren't anarchists but Bakunin and Proudhon and Kropotkin were anarchists so there was a lot of kind of they were they were leftists for sure they were all leftists but the way they thought about how um political power should be should be authority should be mm. kind of spread out among people uh, was very different kind of and I guess we can get into the reasons for for that so yeah so Kropotkin is is um he he has a really interesting story he's he like he actually was born into a royal Russian family um grew up around a lot of wealth um his his I think his one of his parents died at a very young age um and he became really disenchanted by all the wealth around him. He was like really upset about the mm-hmm. fact that um, he was living very comfortably while a lot of, you know, serfdom was kind of, was, was at its peak during the time he was growing up in Russia. And so he's really disappointed by sort of um, the, the disparity in, in access to resources. Um, and bread is a common theme and the book is called Conquest of Bread. And he's, he's, and agriculture is a big part of his focus in the book too. It's just the availability of, of basic resources like food and, and clothing and things like that. Um, so he, he was, he grew up, he was really disenchanted by it, but he was a really, really kind of capable, intelligent person. So he ended up, and his father was, you know, um, was a, was a Russian Royal. So he wanted Kropotkin to go into the Russian military and serve the, the, the Russian Royal family. And he did that for a bit. Um, but he also grew really disenchanted with that after a while and ended up moving to being stationed in Siberia where he like was really interested in, in the concept of reforming sort of the system and was, was really interested in, in sort of seeing how the state could do a better job of providing for people in places like Serbia. Uh, but he grew disenchanted with that too. And, and grew really, um, grew really uh, just, just wasn't happy with, with what he was doing in that position. And so he ended up, um, he ended up actually going into like natural sciences so he like ended up like going to a gymnasium, which is I guess a center of study back then. Um, I think he spent some time studying in Eastern Europe, um, but also in Russia, and started doing things like biology and anatomy, and sort of looking at natural sciences. And if you read if you read the book, you'll see a lot of his. So his, what one thing I think is really cool about the way he thinks about um, anarchism and communism is he sees that it's sort of a natural extension of sort of sort of human living and human science is that if you look at it um if you look at it from a scientific perspective as as he was like very grounded mm-hmm. in the sciences he's he's he says the way humans organize themselves and uh, organize themselves politically scientifically speaking it it inevitably gets to a place where people live together um and um sort of support each other with you know with common access to resources um where there is an equitable distribution of resources, um, the the natural inclination, the scientific natural inclination for human humans is to kind of support each other in this way and, and through forms like mutual aid, etc. So he approached it from a from a natural sciences perspective in a lot of ways, which I think is something you don't really see in a lot of political theory. Um, uh, that that perspective, yeah. I I think one important context to also point out there is that he was kind of like. I don't know, from what I've read, he was kind of, like, opposed to Darwin when, in a time where, like, Darwinism was really, like, being spread, not just as, like, a natural science, like, theory, but also, like, a social science theory, like, social Darwinism, Mm -hmm. how it's, like, every man for himself, it's a dog-eat-dog world, you adapt to survive, whereas, like, he was kind of, like, on the opposite of that, where it was, like, mutual aid, it's, like, animals that, like, bees, I don't know, all of these animals have societies where they work together rather than in competition. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm, that's very interesting. I didn't know that, but I definitely agree. I feel like a lot of political theory doesn't necessarily look at it from a natural science perspective. 
Yeah. No, it's it's true, and I'm and I'm reading the and I'm reading from the introduction to this book that we talked about that Marshall Schatz wrote. But um, Schatz writes that at the heart of Kropotkin's scientific anarchism was his interpretation of Darwin's theory of evolution. In Mutual Aid, which is another book he wrote about specifically focusing on mutual aid, which is something I haven't read, but sorry, what is mutual aid? Um, so mutual aid, um, at least in the specific context that Kropotkin talks about. Um, there are definitely, like, it's been developed since, and there are different co- concepts of it now. Um, but the way he talks about it is um, sort of a sort of a, com- a communal, a communal kind of attention to individual needs and um, requirements and, and an awareness of kind of the basic necessities that individuals in a community need. And... Um, sort of an effort kind of communally to make sure everyone and those individuals are provided those basic necessities and, and requirements. Um, and so that's, that's sort of his, his idea of mutual aid in, in, in this book and, or in the conquest of bread, but mm-hmm. I would definitely have to, I guess we would have to read mutual aid to, to get a better understanding of what he means by that. Cool. But, um, but yeah, basically this says in mutual aid, he argued that social solidarity and cooperation within species not struggle and competition were the dominant factors in the evolution of both ha- animals and of humans. Another question that I think would be cool also for us to answer before we like actually delve deeper into Conquest of Red would be like, what, like, I think here in the U.S., especially when you say anarchy, it means like total chaos, total like disorganization and violence. Um, so like, how has that, what is the original meaning of that term when we talk about Kropotkin's anarcho-communism. I guess that's the book, but he's trying to say it's not. Um, the word has definitely like lost a lot of not lost meaning, but it's been like it's gained so much extra um, uh, connotative meanings that are beyond what the actual definition means. So, I for you reading, um, what? How do you think that shaped? what for even for you your definition of what communism or not communism what anarchy anarchy means yeah um and it's interesting because the the first um i think so uh the kind of first three parts of this book um which are entitled sort of the the chapters in this book are, are they're short they're not they're not that long but um each of these is really succinct but um there the the section i think that says our riches on page uh, 11 of, of this book of this 1995 Cambridge University Press edition that we're reading in this chapter specifically he sort of there's a part where he talks about um, how common how like how ingrained it is in our minds that the state is a like an institution that it is like that we are that we are supposed to be rely on things like judges and police officers and jurors to administer our basic needs and and that that belief is so so like pervasive that it's it's often hard to think about the con- like the implications of that and the consequences of that but um one reason i enjoyed political theory so much is that you get to question a lot of things like that it's like your really basic assumptions about like what what constitutes you know what's right what's wrong and so um from his point of view from and you know and from a lot of people's points of view i think more people are becoming aware of it in the past year or so but you know, this is, I mean, he wrote this book in, in like 18, in like in the late 1800s. So it's, it's, it's not, and like anarchism has a really rich history throughout pretty much any country you can, you can point to. There's a, there's a rich history of anarchism that um, I think we don't really talk about enough or, or think about enough in history classes. Um, maybe it's because people are scared of talking about the, about the word anarchism and what that means. But, um, but basically what, what, what Kropotkin sees in anarchism is, sort of uh, sort of the sort of one the natural affair of things so the natural state of things is is sort of anarchy and sort of the state is an unnatural growth of our of our communication and our in our society and our in our group and i think at different parts in this book he argues that you know we'll get to, our next stage of evolution is as a society and as humans is to is to we started off in communes um in a sort of anarchic state of you know, being where like we were, there wasn't necessarily someone telling us what to do. We sort of work in communities. We were growing things. We were supporting one another. 
we're now at a stage where where there's a state telling us what to do and eventually hopefully like when we get advanced enough we'll go back to being like a society that supports each other without the support of a state Hmm. um and basically he sees sort of the state anarchy is basically a, a way of kind of going back to this natural affair of things but also a way of addressing sort of the extreme um inequality in the distribution of resources that that exists in society and he like really goes into why that is and why why it's so unnatural that the state is developed and like that the state really functions to like protect the inequitable distribution of resources mm-hmm. in a lot of ways um and so he sees he sees anarchy as like sort of the, the really the the only clear way to address that um and of course there are like a lot of things to talk about in terms of what that entails and what the consequences of that is but overall that's that's what he sees anarchy as and i think there are a lot of things to talk about within that in terms of, you know, what that means in terms of what, is there going to be violence that follows? Because I think a lot of people associate anarchy with violence and yeah. that's an important thing to talk about within anarchy because I think um, that is that is a big thing that you have to talk about, especially in, in books like this. And that's something I think, I mean, we can talk about it if you want, but I, I yeah. it's something that um, I think kind of gives anarchy sort of a, a negative connotation. But um, there it's I think anarchy is much more about just sort of kind of surveying the existing state of things and looking at how existing political systems and sort of authority kind of d- hasn't worked to address our basic needs yeah. so what the, oh go ahead sorry i would i don't um i don't know if this is going to create too long of a question because i know we're already like halfway through our time and we haven't even really gotten into any of the specific um excerpts um maybe we'll have to have a part two with professor mahishan um <laughs> But I feel like for me also, even uh, in my burgeoning and budding political education now, <laughs> um, yeah, I think for me, the, the connotation around anarchy has always has also been a lot of violence. And so in your description of this and also kind of understanding um, how human political organization can reflect um, natural or like uh, political or organizations that exist amongst animals and, and insects, for example. Um, I think one of the connotations of anarchy is often beyond violence, also just like complete chaos, like no organization at all. So, um, would for example, the, in the animal world, like you mentioned bees and things like that, they have societies kind of, not necessarily inequitable distribution, but they have <clears throat> they have societies that work together. And um, I guess for you, or maybe in this book, or for Kropotkin, um, does that level of organization mean that there is still not a quote-unquote state? Or what makes the quote-unquote state a different level of organization than um, like, for example, what happens amongst bees where, I don't know, maybe even bees is not a great example because they have like a queen, quote unquote. But, you know, for example, an animal society where they organize to work through things together, um, but isn't necessarily maybe one specific set of representatives or leaders. Mm -hmm. What makes that different from the state? Sure. And I think um, you'll... I think that's that's a that's a really important distinction that you'll find a lot explained in detail on on the chapter called anarchist communism on page 31 in this book um but yeah no there's uh there are a lot of distinctions to make and i think one first off is just sort of the he's really kropotkin is really frustrated um and one thing i'd also recommend reading is um in the same edition in this book that we're talking about is Kropotkin wrote this, he was really interested in um, writing about anarchism from a perspective where people, just general lay people could understand what this was. And so he spent a lot of his like late career, especially writing about anarchism in, in terms and words that are even now kind of a hundred, hundred something years later are, are easier to understand than a lot of like what Marx or Engels had written at the same time. Um, and so his, his Encyclopedia Britannica entry on anarchism also has a lot of interesting insight into sort of the history of it and what he sees as anarchism. But um, first, I think he's mostly, he's he's frustrated with sort of representative political authority and sort of the limitations of that. And so um, he, he really points out, I think in, in this anarchist communism chapter, particularly sort of the, 
the kind of contemporaries around him, including kind of John Stuart Mill, who who critiqued representative government in some way, but I think more so supported it. But Kropotkin kind of um, points out that other people had also critiqued it at the same time and sort of he so the way he sees it is um, he, he provides like certain examples of how he thinks kind of society or groups of people should be organized. And so he sees sort of groups of people on a on a city level on a communal level sort of who are interested in sort of who are who are engaged in the same trade who are engaged in the same pursuit who are engaged in the same kind of kind of common calling to kind of get together in um in communities and kind of do collective determination and do kind of a decentralized kind of determinant determination structure and then once those kind of small circles decide on things they they negotiate with other circles and kind of kind of communicate with other circles and so there's these circles like overlap eventually and you have like a bunch of sort of groups that have that share common interests but they represent the interests of their members and so he for example he like there's um at the at the time he's writing this um he actually points to like international working like the international working men's association as an example of like sort of an intellectual group like that but also like trade associations that are popping up in the u.s um, a lot of a lot of groups that um, represent common people's interests, but aren't necessarily like you know there isn't one individual or a group of individuals that hold all the kind of authority in in, in the people's lives in that way. Mm. Um, and he he contrasts this that with the the limitations of representative government, where we have like you know if we take for example um, sort of a, a a representative body like the like the the parliament the UK, the parliament in UK. Mm-hmm. Like you have what a group of the House of Lords and the House of Commons. Like he doesn't he doesn't cite this particularly, but I'm just providing it as an example. It's like the House of Lords is what like a like a, a bunch of people that the that are just appointed by the Queen and confirmed by you know the Commons that just aren't necessarily that representative. And the Commons is a bit more representative, but you have like a bunch of people who don't necessarily know what they're talking. You know, like they're not they're not working on when they make trade policy on like agriculture, like they're, they're not farmers. Like yeah. they don't, you know, like yeah. most of them are, most of them like don't what do they know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's like that chapter in anarchist communism in particular goes a lot into sort of the limitations of that and why kind of these associations and groups would be more effective in representing people's interests and making sure they get what they need, um, than sort of government. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's the main to, to share and to answer your question. I think that's, the biggest distinction he makes between between like government and kind of the communes and 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 collect and groups that he imagines like instead of, of government yeah it's like the people making the decisions that people actually have a stake on the decision which is not true for most representative government that we see in like europe the u.s right now mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. um yep. in the so in, in the conquest of red he he does like outline a series of like required like conditions and like steps that need to be taken so that we can reach this um ideal type of government this ideal type of society so what are like what exactly like if because he's a very like um like he's not just writing about anarchism as an as an idea as an experiment he like actually has like a plan kind of sort of yeah 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 so i guess i'll um i'll do a general summary of sort of the the main argument and mm-hmm. sort of what the book lays out and then um i guess we can talk about what the the plan is but um his his main kind of his main his main the what he proceeds from in arguing for sort of an anarcho-communist society is that we his argument is we as a society you know society is not not in a particular society i mean he thinks of europe a lot when he's talking so it's, mm. it's not necessarily like he doesn't say specifically Europe, but I think in his mind he references a lot of European countries. So I guess that's a good thing to keep in mind when we're talking about this. Is mm-hmm. um, he he thinks of uh, he th- he he makes a point that we as a society, which I think is still true, is is we are richer than we think. We are richer than we let on. Like the the, the substance of socialism as a goal is to address this vast amount of inequality, and the the development of like political economy by people like Adam Smith and, and Ricardo and, and people like that and kind of the forefathers of capitalism is sort of kind of this distribution of resources but mm-hmm. what I think what he kind of critiques in this book is we like as a society we really forget that we have enough food we have enough clothing we have enough 
substance to provide like everyone's basic needs and we produce that especially in an age of industrialization and like mass technology it's 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 not it's not unimaginable that every single person in a given country or just the world can have what they need just like to subsist right mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's, I really, that's the... I, I really liked that, um, that that portion of the book. Um, I think it went in like the first or second chapter. Um, in terms of like just thinking also through the things we've seen in our short lifetime, it really reminded me of like over the, in the beginning of quarantine, in the beginning of the pandemic, when there was so much news around um, like dairy farms pouring out their milk and all these other things that was like it's you have to just artificially create um demand (laughs) i suppose or artificially create the notion that there's not enough and therefore you have to pay x y and z amount um and also x y and z groups should not have access to it and even thinking around things like often you hear the the statistic that like here in the u.s if everyone who is currently houseless wanted not wanted but were allowed to be in a house there's surplus places for them to live but it's only because we try to create this artificial idea about um scarce housing who do yes sparse housing who deserves to be in a house who deserves um protection based on what they can produce from society um i really appreciated that um portion in in the conquest of bread because i was like that's very true Yeah, and I think I think Sharon, yeah, that's that's really important, and I think that's really the foundation of most of his argument is that he he keeps coming back to this throughout the book, which is just like remember when they tell us you know there isn't enough for this person you know can't have this it's there's no re- there's no there's the reason for that is just the, like why not you know like the, the and the main reason he says is and this kind of goes into more of the argument but that the the point of the state in particular, this is where he implicates the state and the government, is that it exists to sort of enforce a system where like the rich kind of accumulate this 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 kind of these basic necessities and for their own profit. Um, and basically what he says is that sort of, th- there's this argument that, you know, th- this is part of sort of the, the main point that I'm summarizing here of, of, the, of the book is, um, is, is that it, a lot of people, you know, say, you know, they've, they've worked for things, you know, it's, it's, it's the capitalist ethos is very much like, I've worked for this, I've, you know, I put a lot of effort into this, like, I, I deserve this. And you hear that, you know, just all the time. And what he does, in I guess the first couple of chapters in this book is try to kind of illustrate the ways in which sort of our progress as a society and as individuals, uh, the way we benefit from things like healthcare and, and sort of improvements in food and, you know, things like that those are really collective achievements. Like you can't say you really like revolutionize the way agriculture is grown in the West. And as a result, like you, you like you own the prof, you own the right to like claim all of the profits from this. Right. You can't say like you single-handedly like have been able to like transform the energy industry. And as, as a result, like you, you own the right or like a group of small people own the right to like what comes out of this. It's like, if you, if you look at it from a perspective of sort of this long historical arc, like the people who contributed to this are the workers, are are the working class that just like initiated the efforts to create these systems and create this progress. And you, it's impossible for any one person or any group mm-hmm. of people to be like, I, I made this, I did this that. is mine. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah. no, it, it belongs to everyone is this point. Like this is, this is something we all, we all contributed to. And so you can't, you can't say that, you know, the, the benefits of this belong to one person. And so as a result, his, his the argument really extends from that, like everyone has, everyone has an equal right to, to everything that is being produced, right? Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't make a distinction that one person has more of a right to something than others, just based on the value of like, sure, they may put in some more work at, at a certain yeah. specific period of time, but overall as a society, everyone has an equal right to everything. Mm-hmm. Or even, I mean, if you think about things, that especially makes me think about um, like, patenting rights and especially uh, as it comes to like uh, thinking about agriculture um like new types of grains or like new ways i mean in the book specifically they talk about machinery so like thinking about new machines that are made and who has access to patenting those thinking about new types of grains as like 
specifically uh, genetically modified foods and some things like that become more widely available. And often I think a lot of those innovations are um, made under the claim that it's, you know, higher nutrients, better output, um, like in terms of production. So it's going to be more accessible to more people. But once they become patented, it's like one person or one family or one group of people has access to that and they no longer share that with anyone else. Um, So, yeah, just thinking about that part of the book as well, it made me really think about... (laughs) You know, people, there shouldn't necessarily, there shouldn't, as Kropotkin said, there shouldn't necessarily be gatekeeping around who has access to any of these things because all of those contributions are so systemic. (laughs) They are from so many different groups of people, but it does happen all the time. (laughs) Yeah, like how can you claim ownership of an idea? Like an idea does not exist in a vacuum. Like I feel like another good example is like algorithms. Like today tech companies, they they can file patents for like, an algorithm that I don't know allows mm-hmm. a computer to store data in a new way and that allows a company to run their computer super fast and do a lot more processing than other regular computers would and they patent that and suddenly only they have access to that being that like how do you ha- like what is an algorithm how do you say this is an algorithm and this isn't when we have a history of like a hundred years of building computer science of coming up with these ideas to- so that it could lead towards this algorithm that you created absolutely or even the COVID vaccine. Like, why mm-hmm. should one company have any ownership over uh, <laughs> mRNA <laughs> or anything like that? Like, why? It takes, as you said, centuries of progress to even understand yeah. how vaccines work, um, what is the use of them, and then a lot of, a huge team has to go into understanding how does this specific vaccine work in context, that why should any one company be in ownership yeah. of of that information? The CEO of Pfizer mm-hmm. didn't come up with a vaccine. A bunch of scientists that he paid to work for Pfizer did, right? Exactly. And they also have had, like, extensive scientific careers and a lot of Mm -hmm. mentors. And the ripple effect is so wide that why should any... Why should the one president or CEO of Pfizer be the one in control of that? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And I'm thinking, have either of you read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks? Yes, yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. No, it's it's just, like, you know, the, the, the cells from this one black woman have provided the foundation for like modern pharmacological yeah. treatment and a because lot of that it was is... like they took cells i think from a cancerous uh some sort of cancer that she had inside of her and so mm-hmm. the cancerous cells like just continued to grow and grow and go- grow and they realized that they could be really useful in terms of creating vaccines because these cells are not dying so quickly um, and they can be adapted in different contexts and different environments to um, just create different um, create vaccines to for different scenarios. Um, but of course, she never she and her family never saw any sort of um, benefits from any of those tests that were run on her. Or I don't even think that they were made aware that her cells were taken and continuously used for scientific output. But anything that like in the scientific community that says it's based on HeLa cells are all from her original cells. So they have like a warehouse where they're just like growing her cells. I'm sure like a bunch of different um, science companies have her cells and use them for a, a lot of different purposes. Yep. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yep. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, yeah, for sure. I, I think this is a good um, segue to the discussion of, like, private property and, I guess, the relationship of the government to it in Compass mm-hmm. of Red. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, reading um, the third chapter, they talk a lot about kind of the as we organize towards these communes and organize towards anarchy, (laughs) um, there's going to have to be an end to the notion of private property. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could speak on that a little bit, Mahishan? Um, Sure, yeah. I mean, and I think one really good person um, to read in terms of, like, what private property is, is Prudhomme. Like, he's written a lot more extensively on like what is private property and like the modern concepts of that. And, um, and I'm sure you can like add a note somewhere that, you know, that directs people to the, to the reading I'm referencing, but, 
Yeah, we're um, going to be posting a reading list um, on our Instagram and on our Spotify when we upload this episode. Um, yeah, so, I mean, private property doesn't... He, I mean, it, it doesn't... It doesn't really exist in 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 sort of this anarcho-communist society that that Kropotkin envisions, and so basically what he says is that once you know people are provided their basic needs, so it, it and it, this is part of his attack on sort of the the wage system. He says that it shouldn't be from each according to his means to each according to his labor. It should be from each according to his me from each according to his means or from his ability to each according to his needs. Mm-hmm. So once people's needs are met, um, the concept of private property is is sort of kind of, the, the, the need for private properties is a little bit more broken down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think an important and, um, yeah, uh, preface that he also makes in this part is that, um, like you said, it's not necessarily each according to their own labor, labor, but simply because each person has human value that they should be allowed to have basic rights. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Also, I think he does complicate a little bit the definition of private property because I think, like, in a general term, like, we understand private property as, like, ownership of means of production of things that are, like, you can exclude people from using. So it's, like, land ownership... Um, I don't know, you own a machine, you own an idea, an algorithm. But he also extends the idea of private property towards like even like housing and food. Um, yeah, can you explain that a little bit? Because I think that part I, I need to reread again because I was like, hmm. Yeah, and also kind of adding on to that question, kind of where is the definition or difference between private property and personal property, are those the same things? And is private like kind of uh, an extension of the state or does that also mean you as an individual and your own private property? Those are also some of my questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess in terms of the, the food the food thing, the food and, and the clothing thing is that um, there basically I think his, his argument is that there is, there is really no clear reason for things like food and, and clothing to be privatized and to be to be things that we kind of commoditize in that way um and sort of the the reason the wage system is again sort of the the reason for this and he he thinks that like kind of providing people this means will kind of make it clear that these things shouldn't be privatized um and then Sharon, what was your question? What was what did you what was the thing you wanted? Where to where is the line between private property and personal property, or are those the same thing? And does when he talks about privatization of things like clothes and food, is that in reference to the state, or does it also mean in terms of you as an individual um, and your your rights to own? I don't know personal yeah. in- and what articles? is the state's <laughs> relation to private property like he does draw a, a, a very like important relation between the existence of a state and the existence of private property mm-hmm. yeah 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 um i don't know i i really i i like i don't maybe i should read maybe i should read it closer enough but um that's okay i don't know if you have, any, <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts on it but I, I don't i can't really say immediately what what the I difference is between uh, from what i understood yeah. is that um like private he he talk there's a section where he talks about like what the law is versus what is right um and he says like oh actually let me see if i have the quote um hmm. he basically says like today we do things um and like we understand what is doable not doable right wrong because it's legal because it's illegal because the law said rather than something Mm -hmm. and the law was imposed on us it wasn't something we agreed to when we were born whereas he says like the the reason why he advocates like for anarchism is like you need we need to um work on around consensus not law and everyone needs to have a like a participation in that we can discuss like the practicality of that but so when he talks about private property, from what I understood, is that the state has a really important role in enforcing private property as, like, the definition of private property as law, and then the state being the body that will, like, ensure that you have and only you have access to it. 
And so when he says we need to abolish that, so I don't think that just because one person um, has the recipe for the vaccine, they should be the only person that can access it and then they can get really rich off of selling it for billions of dollars. You also need to question the role of the state in upholding and maintaining that rule where that person is allowed to keep everything. Yeah, and I uh, yeah, I know you're right, and I think he um like I, we were talking about this earlier, but he the role of the state he really sees is to fundamentally enforce this like inequality in in access to things like food and and clothing and and sort of he sees he sees again these these organizations these these communities of people with mutual interests um the, he sees that as being sort of the optimal kind of organization and the state sort of stands in the way of of making sure that these groups are are existing and are providing for people's needs um and private property again is is sort of the kind of the state's way of enforcing this inequal inequitable distribution of of resources and, and access to things one like really crazy i think like um dichotomy or misconception that i think i've been taught since like high school is like oh democrats are like for big state and republicans are for small state and the state is always in opposition to corporations because he's trying it's trying to tax them and provide for the people so there needs to be a balance between like private interests and then the state who cares about public interests but what i liked about kropotkin is that he says no like the whole system requires these two to work together and the only reason why companies um are allowed to exist is because they have a sponsorship from the state so they're just like in practical terms like yeah silicon valley isn't just a bunch of like people who are like oh i'm so smart and i i worked so hard i came up with these ideas there's just so much like u.s government money that funded these companies like the only reason like spacex is a thing is because like most of the money that it gets is from the government because it's actually mm-hmm. you know like it's actually like an, an arms company and um i i i thought it was interesting that um like to Kropotkin then if those things all work together and in order to have private property you need to have a state in order to have the expropriation people you need to have an enforcing like power then the only way to undo it is for you to get rid of everything and start from scratch mm. yeah yeah yep absolutely um and later on the book he kind of goes into sort of the distinctions between it's interesting there's a, there's a there's a discussion i think in um they're in a particular section um it might it might be uh expropriation um where he kind of talks about the 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 way in which we kind of kind of redistribute these things and and sort of the structure of revolution and um he sees sort of he he sort of doesn't doesn't see the state being taking an active role in that at all he sort of he sort he sees like individuals and communities being being the people who like sees the means of production um and which which yeah when and it's it's interesting i feel like i've we we've maybe talked about this in another context but like he even talks about machines like machines make things right like but people like but who owns them like you know like the the upper like rich people and the government own machines like you know people should just have access to machines and things that things that make things um Mm -hmm. and that's 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 a form of revolution is is seizing the means of production that way yeah yeah absolutely do we want to maybe talk about some like real or like examples of what this society could look like in kropotkin's eyes yes Is there one that you would like to bring up first, MC, or that you would like for us to discuss first? Um, I guess maybe the most, like, timely one would be the, or, like, the most, like, I think that everyone has heard of is the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone that came up mm. last year. Which I'm supposed to be the expert on. <laughs> <laughs> Please, share. Um, <laughs> um, I think um, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone is an interesting one. Um, because I, they were attempting to have an anarchist state. I will say also (laughs) for all of the listeners, I know I'm supposed to be the expert, but you know, I'm simply also reading the news like everyone else. (laughs) So a a lot of the things I'm still learning and a lot of the things that, um, were coming out over the summer, I think were very, um, biased just in terms of like the mainstream media and the things that they were saying. So I will say, I'll, let me 
say what I have read. <laughs> um, but the autonomous zone, I think, was really controversial in that it started really a kind of successfully. <laughs> um, I think that maybe the Seattle police were a bit surprised by how successful the <laughs> autonomous zone was and didn't know what to do about it. <laughs> um, and like they had their own medics, they had their own um, like cultural events and things that would happen in their autonomous zone. And it was like, everything was going fine. But then after like a month or so, so all the news sources say there was a lot of internal violence. Like there was several, um, one person at least who, who was killed by gun violence, some other people who were injured because of shootings in the autonomous zone. So I don't, I feel like for me, that's kind of, it's an interesting example because it kind of points to, I think for a lot of people on the left, like there is a possibility that it can happen in like these small commune, um, formats if there's enough people who are interested in the same goal and have no interest in being involved with the state um for them to create their own societies and regulate themselves but at the same time i think for people leaning more towards the right and more conservative they'll point to the way that the autonomous zone ended and the fact that there was violence which we kind of touched upon in the beginning as like when people think about anarchy they tend to think a lot about violence and that's why that will never be able to work because it doesn't regulate itself um, I don't know if either of you also had thoughts around like where you think maybe Kropotkin would have things to say about how the autonomous zone worked and didn't work <laughs> of last year. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, no, it's, and Sharon, thanks for that summary. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the, if we want to talk about things that Kropotkin didn't explicitly talk about, or maybe that leave some room to discuss even further is just um and one of the criticisms marshall Schatz, the editor has in the, in the start of this book is just that he wasn't very clear on where he stood on violence as as a principle and sort of what role it plays in anarcho-communism and the emergence mm. of this anarcho-communist society even when it happened in real life for example there's just like violence happening in russia in the early 20th century um when it was mm-hmm. against the state he was he was sometimes frustrated with the violence, but also supported the violence and saw it like mm-hmm. he saw violence as nest as as a part of kind of creating this as a revolution. But he like didn't he he didn't really encourage it on an individual level, but saw violence directed at the state and that like at like large systems and institutions is more as more kind of receptive. He was more receptive to that and more kind of OK with that than he was just like sort of people just like kind of going at each other on an individual basis. Um, but even that he was really unclear about and he never really kind of clarified his view on what role violence plays. Um, and I think that's that's uh, an important, and I think definitely, I mean, with the capital autonomous zone, I'm sure there are other factors and things to consider in terms of like, why was, why did, why were there, you know, shootings um, at the end of that incident? It's like, who was, who exactly was involved? I know like, for example, reading about it, um, I know that groups like the Proud Boys, the white supremacist group, um, were like, provo- like provoking people and like we're, we're telling people that they were going to go in with their guns and, and harm people. And so like there, I think there's a lot to be unpacked there. And I don't think we've, we've really fully unpacked sort of what, what happened there, but um, violence is definitely something to contend with. I think if we're imagining a society where things are, are, are more equitable and, and, and yeah. Yeah. And I think well, also one of the down. Uh, downsides of course of even something like this and maybe also the fact that it's set in a city is um for this commune to actually produce manufacture food clothing shelter etc for itself that's almost so impossible in the city setting like maybe it's more possible if you and your small group of people go out somewhere rural where there's not a lot of people and you can farm and use the land to your own needs and as you would want it might be more feasible if you have the knowledge of how to do that but if you're trying to do it like in just like a couple city blocks what are you using besides what people bring in which is based on the 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 like society that you're trying to avoid (laughs) so that of course makes it difficult in that context yeah it one thing that i would be interested in in i guess I mean, he's dead, so he can't say anything. But the the fact that you you do because the whole like the whole world is in this system now, right? You have all these relationships like between nation states, like there, there's just so much hierarchization organization that in order for one thing to work, 
pretty much everyone has to also um, jump into it as well. Otherwise, you're going to it's it's so easy for you to be starved, for you to be stopped, for you to be invaded. Um, if mm-hmm. you decide to go in that direction, because everything is so mm-hmm. interconnected. If a country decides to um, s- to to go that route and stop producing for export, um, you're going to destabilize not just yourself but many other yeah. communities and countries around the world as well. Yeah. And I've been really interested in sort of, I think this is where my, like, this is where I, this is how I got interested in sort of anarcho-communism, but just like um, the way people like Miriam Kaba trans, like center transformative justice mm-hmm. in, in a lot of these anarcho-communist societies. Mm. And like, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever read anything that it, where any of these kind of contemporary like thinkers like Kaba or like, saying, you know, this is an, an- like, I've never read explicitly them saying this is anarchy. So I, this is me kind of putting this framework on, on their thought. But, um, but I think a lot of what transformative justice tries to do is, is address sort of these, these causes of violence in places like the Capital Hill Autonomous Zone. So like the sexual violence, the endemic poverty and, and, and kind of social violence that happens on like a, on an individual level, on a community level. And, trying to address that at the same time while not relying on the state explicitly. And so um, that's something that wasn't really explored much in the capital. Auto- like even before this autonomous zone was set up, there were there were like this this part of Seattle, like had a lot of kind of difficulties within their communities, like had a lot of incidences of sexual violence and, and gun violence. And so that that's something to think, really think about on a community like level is just how do you address these like root causes of, of community violence mm-hmm. and and i think once i think you really have to focus on that before you start thinking of like how can we like transition to like a, a more like more ac- yeah so i think you need, really yeah. need to think about that yeah in, in that yeah. vein it just seems like abolition and um this this type of communist anarcho-communism that Kropotkin talks about could be very complementary to each other because it deals with that sorts of violence that you were talking about Sharon absolutely yeah i um interestingly i feel like sometimes our time in the pixar movement pokes its head in other parts of our lives in kind of useful ways what movement? and i think actually the title nine prince and title nine movement mm-hmm. um it it because we had to do so much um reading and understanding around transformative justice i think it really has been useful in trying to understand both abolition and um the framework and mindset around it, but also even as you're talking about here, um, like in an anarchist society, how do people organize themselves and also how do they deal with internal conflict, um, which is inevitably going to happen. Um, I, yeah, I would definitely recommend, maybe that can be something also we can add to our reading list is like some intros to transformative justice and and how it works, what are the, the principles behind it and um, just general mindsets. <laughs> Yeah, I think this speaks so much to the role of like just education, political education, making sure everyone is in the right, in the like mm-hmm. same page. For sure. Before Absolutely. you're able to do anything. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another example, I think very relevant example of this um, anarcho-communism that um, Kropotkin talks about. It's, it's kind of hard to find any of those in the real world. Like, you look up communism, you'll find, like, that, the, like, uh, Freetown Christiania in Denmark. And from what I know, everyone there is just, like, addicted to drugs. That's, that's like, the narrative. But another example that I think we don't talk about as much is the um, autonomous uh, zones of the EZLN, the, Zabat- the like, neo-Zabatistas in Mexico. So in 1994, there was an uprising among the um, Zabatistas, which was a group founded in 1983. They were kind of a guerrilla group, but they were based in the area of Chiapas um, in Mexico, which was a super neglected, um, impoverished area that had suffered a lot of the consequences of the privatization of land and the hyperinvestment in urban areas and divestment of uh, rural um, communities. So, like, they were experiencing, like, a lot of loss to, like, labor migration, a lot of poverty, a lot of neglect from the government. And in 1994, it was like the day that they ratified NAFTA, which was the trade agreement between like Mexico and the US that kind of started the immigration crisis by like letting a lot of um, US capital enter uh, Mexico and just kind of um, establish like 
completely like ruined their food sovereignty and create displaced a lot of people because now you have all of these like fact american factories that are um exploiting people and um need jobs i i, I can't really like I can't, I can't like do a whole analysis of how bad NAFTA was for Mexico, but the day that NAFTA was um, signed, um, the EZLN they declared war on the Mexican government. They were like, their people here have like literally zero income. People here are dying of malnourishment, and so they um, invaded towns. They took over like town halls and cities, and they basically started this like internal war. Um, and it ended with a ceasefire where the government basically uh, agreed to concede um, these zones to the EZLN. And so since then, um, the Zapatistas, known as the EZLN, they um, have like rule over those regions and they established like communities that were very much like anarchists. So based on like communal governance, they would have like they'll have like town halls and they'll make decisions based on like consensus or if need be, like, majority vote, but usually consensus. And they restructured their entire economy um, and organization around um, providing for the needs of the community, which speaks very much to um, the, the the bread part of the conquest of bread, where Kropotkin says, like, the most essential thing you need in a revolution or in any, in any like, organization of society is to give people what they need to survive, which is food. Like, you need to worry about that first. And so they were able to um, reach like um, food sovereignty by reorganizing, um, doing collective ownership of the land and producing for them for subsistence rather for like export and selling. Um, and they're still around like they're still community like obviously they suffer a lot of repression from the government. There are a lot of people who are trying to enter that land to take that land. Um, but they are a really good example of like a real world um like anarchist community and they have really really cool um like beliefs in and and just like philosophies in gender equality in um in like queer feminism and in in just um expanding the definition of education towards something that is towards community building so like their education is like in the classroom but also in the field and it's very much uh they don't see teachers as like experts they see like they see teachers as like promoters of education. So it's very, very collective and it's a very like horizontal way of organizing society, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think they're a good example. Agreed. Um, we only have a couple minutes left. So maybe, I don't know, Mahishan, if you had any like favorite parts of the book uh, or any lingering thoughts that we haven't addressed, maybe that you think we should talk about. Um, yeah, I think we talked about a lot. Um, yeah, this was this was a really cool conversation. Um, yeah, thank you for having me here. I, it was really, Yay. it was really neat to talk about it with you. Um, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess one thing I would just say in terms of what I thought interesting was um, chapter four, the one about kind of exploitation. Um, I think he says that we think about. I've I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like Amazon and and sort of. The, the growth of like big conglomerate corporations and people organizing for their rights. But basically he says that kind of corporate exploitation and government exploitation is becomes really difficult to do when people's basic needs are met. If yeah. people like have what mm-hmm. they need, if people like, like just, you know, they, they have what they need, they don't have to rely on anyone to get what they need. People can't be exploited in the same way. And I think that's a really important point that that's, yeah, we should consider, I think when we're thinking about contemporary yeah. events. Yeah. That's I, it, it only, I feel like, strengthens the point, um, MC, that you were talking about in terms of, like, they say Democrats versus Republicans do X, Y, and Z, and then the business is over here doing whatever, whatever. But really, um, because of the way that the government and business are so hand-in-hand, the government will always support the way that a business can exploit people. Like, they were not, they're not going to provide, even now in the United States, it's like we're begging people <laughs> to get $1,400. Yeah. It's like they're never going to do uh, a universal basic income. They're never going to provide housing for everyone on a, on a national level. They're um, dragging their feet even to consider, like, universal health care. <laughs> um, 
and it, that sets the foundation such that businesses become the ones who provide these opportunities, yeah. like the fact that healthcare is provided through your employment, mm-hmm. or yeah. even getting a min, like a tiny minimum wage, <laughs> working out of some huge place like Amazon, where their CEO makes billions at this point. <laughs> um, it lays the foundation such that the uni- the government is not going to provide these basic requirements so that no one can be exploited. And the business is going to right. support the government in that end goal. <laughs> it's a cycle. Like, it, it maintains itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, I guess, okay, sorry. We have, like, three more minutes. Actually, we have five more minutes. Okay. Um, well, I guess, I guess just earlier, I guess, Sharon, you asked when this was written, um, or Conquest of Red. So I, I found the part where it says... Um, but basically, it started as a series of articles in the 1880s in, like, French anarchist magazines. And then it was published in 1892. It was translated into English from Fran- Fran- French in 1906. And then the one we're referencing is was published in 1913. Mm. So mm. That's the history of wow. the book. I-, I love how, like, honestly, I did not have a hard time reading this. Like, it is, like, dense, but it's very well written. And yeah, so I agree. time like I if someone told me it was written in the seventies, I would have been like, Yeah, sure. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. More. And obviously like the things that we're talking about today, like the autonomous zone or even um the Zapatista movement in Mexico, those are all pretty recent examples. Yeah. Even though the Zapatista movement's from the nineties, mm-hmm. but that's like yeah. still relatively recent example. So these things apply even a hundred plus years yeah. later. Yeah. I think the one thing I did want to bring up, though, was I think, like, thinking about, like, the limitations or, like, the blind spots of Kropotkin was, mm. I think, I, there was a part where he talked about, like, oh, there was anarchism briefly when the people who disagreed with the British government went to the Americas. And I was like, whoa. And <laughs> I don't know about all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, adding a, right. an analysis of, like, imperialism yeah. and And um, also colonization. Who, which people in that imperialism colonization which people in that society had the access and opportunity to go to those other places mm-hmm. i don't think it was you know people who mm-hmm. were yeah yes they were facing oppressions of some sort but i don't think it's like the same type of oppressions that kropotkin is thinking about yeah 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 and i also want to i want to like on on that point very relevant very relevant but um yeah i definitely want to call out some of the dated language in in this book it's it's like yeah it was definitely like you it, you can tell he was he was writing from a specific point. Of, I mean, a lot of it is is really, really worth reading, but there are some parts, I guess, not not a lot of it, just like one or two parts of the book later on where he's like, references the savages of New yeah. Guinea, and I'm just like, oh, it's, no. Which is <laughs> but, it's interesting because like so much of these anarchist communist ideas are derived from like indigenous like ideas of communal governance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like the yeah. Zapatistas, like their, their, their whole thing is like, we don't brand ourselves because like we are trying to go back to like indigenous sovereignty. Um, so it's interesting that he rejects or, or like he calls people savages but he's still like recycling or like but it's like you're also on your way to aiming towards a more natural form of government which yeah. these yeah. quote-unquote savages yeah, yeah. are most likely doing <laughs> yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah very interesting yeah i, I guess yeah. it's just it's cool for us to like keep reading so that we can keep building onto these ideas and yeah absolutely yeah let yeah a yeah, lot, lot more um yeah something else i would add in terms of recommendations is marx had a lot of interesting responses to this um he like really didn't agree with kropotkin and in, in the way he thought mm. like the state he he saw he still saw there being a role for the state in mm. basically the way i mean communism in in marx's communism is basically sort of a a revolution that is uh, that is led by the proletariat and and overthrows the bourgeoisie and he see, he sees like he sees the proletariat taking an active role in, in, in like the governing of society and sort of the, the erasure of class er, erasure of class mm. difficulties in that way, but the proletariat coming to rule, right? So and for Marx, it's the idea is that there is a representative state, but there is no class hierarchy. Whereas exactly, for Kropotkin, yeah. mm-hmm. there is no representative state. Right, right. So, I mean, that's a whole nother, it's really, there's a lot more reading to do that. That's a, just another perspective that's, like, worth, I'll, I'll also, there's another reading that you can definitely include in terms of that as well. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, yeah. So, thank you so much, Mahishan, for, yeah, doing thank you. this with us. 
Um, so much fun. Yeah, this was a great discussion. I really am yeah. glad that you brought this. <laughs> yeah. I feel alive. For sure. <laughs> Um, I'm, I feel like I'm learning new things. Yeah, like my brain <laughs> got a little bit bigger, tingling. <laughs> um, so we're gonna yeah. we're gonna be posting like all of these readings on our Instagram. You can follow us at. Uh, I guess we need to change the handle name to Hot Girl Theory. For now, it's called um, Mustani Two K Fifty M U S T A N I Two K Fifty, and we also have uh, we also publish our podcast on Spotify, and you can just look up Hot Girl Theory. And we'll have a reading mm-hmm. list. You can actually download A Conquest of Bread, right, um, as a PDF mm-hmm. online. Super easy. Um, and, yeah, um, stay tuned for the next hour. We're going to be playing some um, post-revolutionary success tunes, I guess, or just, like, tunes to make people happy. Yeah. And Songs to sing with your comrades <laughs> at the end of a long day. Exactly, a long, successful day. <laughs> Exactly. So, as uh, as Kropotkin says, the revolution begins after everything. everything exactly. Stops. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's always good to take some time to part, stop, and party a little bit. So, stay tuned. Um, you just heard Hot Girl Theory um, by MC and Sharon with.